2: 855 kilohertz on your AM dial. I'd like to acknowledge the Wurundjeri people of the Kulin Nation, traditional owners of the land from which 3CR transmits people-powered radio. Hi, I'm Bill. And each week on the Living Free Show, we showcase one of the 12-step programs that assist recovery from drugs, alcohol, gambling, and food addictions. Our guests share the recovery story and highlight that shared experience saves lives. Uh, We recorded the show via Zoom during Melbourne's COVID-19 lockdown number six. And today my guest is Hannah. Uh, she's a compulsive gambler who's recovering with the help of Gamblers Anonymous. Welcome to the show, Hannah. Thanks for coming on.
1: It's a pleasure. Thank you for inviting me.
2: We usually start by talking about growing up and the things that influenced your life. So do you want to tell us a bit about your, your family and growing up and how things were for you and maybe you know, with an emphasis on the things that you think influenced your life's direction?
1: My grandparents were Lithuanian refugees in South Africa. And my parents were both born in South Africa, but my father lost his dad in 1918 through the 1918 epidemic or pandemic. And it's one of those coincidences. His mother was left to fend for herself. He went into an orphanage and he became a very... Strong man in his own way, very controlled and very controlling. My mother, on the other hand, her mom died when she was eight. And her father, I often think that he's my ancestor that I took after. He gambled on everything, uh, he had a hip, plas- hip flask on him all the time. And when his wife died, there were six children. My mother was the eldest girl, and she had the responsibility and He left the family. He went off and went prospecting, won and lost gold mines, cattle farms, died in an old aged home with nothing. I can't speak for everybody, but uh their friends and their family all played card games playing cards was was normal it was what. That generation did, and all the generations afterwards. I mean, my grandparents, my parents, and I played social card games uh, where you would have Wednesday night midweek game, and then you'd have a weekend game, and it was perfectly normal. That grandfather was a gambler. He taught me to play cards, and it wasn't about how much money you won or lost. It was just about winning
2: well, I guess my parents were similar, both very heavily into card games and things. I think it was something that was done a lot and probably started during the Depression, particularly in Australia, that people didn't have much to do and you, playing cards was a fairly cheap option.
1: Whether it was cards or chess or all sorts of games, you know, and, and I love playing games, but I've learned that I don't know when to stop playing games. The, ma- the man that I married, Came from a, an immigrant family and, and they also gamble. Well, they played the horses and they would sit down on a Saturday afternoon around the table and they would be betting on the horses and playing bridge, which is a game that I still play today. It's not played for money and it stimulates my mind because I believe my mind is is active. I know that... I'm an intelligent person, and and I'm not saying that because I'm being egotistical. I've been able to pass exams, I've been able to get things done, and how someone with my intelligence manages to lose as much money as I've lost over the years, it's because of this compulsion not to stop, to keep going. It's one way of me showing I'm good enough or better than other people, because I can win sometimes my husband played chess and he taught me to play chess and that poor man eventually at two o'clock in the morning would have to let me win because I didn't need to sleep. My mother had similar traits they, they had a poker school and they used to play in the same school until eventually my father just wouldn't play with my mother because she was a gambler and he was a card player. And I think there's a big difference between playing games and being addicted to playing games.
2: So do you want to go back and talk a bit about your childhood, what it was like growing up? And did you consider your life to be you know, fairly normal? Did you, have, you know, go to school and have friends and have easy
1: friendships or not? I grew up in South Africa. I tended to isolate, to run away. I've learned to socialize with people, but I would rather play games than make small talk. And when I got to school, I didn't have many friends. I'd sit alone very often in the playground. I ran away from kindergarten at the age of about three. I think I I took off. I never really belonged anywhere. My parents, maybe because they had been... In in my dad's case, brought up by a single parent, he had his own hang-ups, and my mother was abandoned and and farmed out to other relatives. She would tell me how she would go to school in a donkey cart, and they worked really, really hard to give me the things that they never had as children. I loved dogs, and when my sister was born, she's three years younger than me, I was given two dogs, and they were my friends. I used to go riding on my bicycle and the dogs would come with me. And um, there's a story about my mother had a dog that when I was a baby in the pram, this dog, she used to put my my pram in the front yard and the dog would circle the pram all the time and nobody could come near me because that, that was my protection. My dad used to go mountain climbing. He would take me with him. I was the son that he never had, so I was led down that path of doing doing the men things, and I loved speed on a bicycle, driving fast in motor cars. I do tend to isolate i'm not I'm not a hermit I'm talking to you I, I belong to four fellowships could belong to more but Even that is something when you have to know when to stop.
2: Yes, you do. Yeah, Just to to take you back to school then, so did you have any brothers and sisters?
1: I had a younger sister who was a real pain in the bum. She thought she knew everything. She was extremely bossy. As much as I tended to isolate, I also tended to buy friends. I would steal money from my parents or I would use my bus fare to buy friends lollies and I've learned that you can't buy friends you you can buy company but you can't buy friendship my education was okay I passed my exams I I left school at the age of 15 which was not that uncommon in the 60s
2: So did your life change sort of moving from primary to secondary school? Did the change in friendships there have an influence?
1: I was sent to boarding school because I was a delinquent and because I ran away from home often. And growing up in South Africa during the apartheid era, I didn't obey the rules of the government and I played with whoever I wanted to play with and my parents were concerned about my well-being. And they sent me to boarding school. And again, I was an outsider. I was one of two Jewish children in that boarding school. So I was different in that sense because my parents weren't practicing anyway. So I didn't didn't fit in with any of the communities that I was meant to fit in with. I finished my junior certificate and... After my first year of high school, I had failed French. It took me out of the academic class. And then my dad decided if I was a hairdresser, I would always be able to get a job. So this girl who had no interest in hairdressing was given an apprenticeship and I was very young. Most of the people I associated with were a few years older and that's when my drinking started. Because when I went out and I'd had a couple of drinks, I could socialize. I didn't have to run away.
2: Do you want to just talk about what it was like once you started drinking, the the effect it had on you and how it liberated you, how it let you feel like you were part of?
1: A lot of what I realize today is through doing the 12 steps. Any pictures of me as a teenager, my late teens, early 20s, I've got a glass in one hand and a cigarette in the other hand. And I started smoking at the age of 10 before I was out of primary school. I was smoking cigarettes because that's what people were doing. That's what my associates were doing. As I said, I I walked the wrong side of the street. And in order to, to fit in, I did what they did. I didn't think I craved a drink I didn't think I wanted a drink but it did help me to socialize with people and eventually my parents sent me off to Israel they sent me on another I really was hard work for them whether it was the alcohol or my low self-esteem I didn't have many morals I was very flirtatious when I was drinking I could flirt with people and I was promiscuous. That's the word I was looking for. But I didn't like who I was. The first geographical trip my mother took me on, I was 18. And we went from South Africa to the UK. My parents had sold their business and were had, had done well. And on that particular sea trip, I learned about... Well, they were then called one-armed bandits in those days. It was a machine where you pulled a handle. And I go back before then, I used to play pinball machines. And I would use my pocket money to play pinball machines. And although you didn't play for money, you won games. And I would accumulate games on the machine and I would play there and I wouldn't get home for dinner. Because, again, this was something I enjoyed doing and I didn't know when to stop doing it. I'm telling this story because it reminds me so much of the stories I hear my alcoholic friends sharing that they didn't know when to leave the pub or they would spend the money that was given to them for for bread or for and and it doesn't matter if it's alcohol or gambling or buying people sweets, it's money that is intended for other things that is being spent. And then there's a panic. Oh Shit, how 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 do I go home and I haven't got any bread? But I only went down the road to buy a loaf of bread and I've been gone for two hours and there's no bread. And that would result in me getting punished, uh, getting hidings, getting grounded, not being able to go out during school holidays, Keeping in mind I'd been in boarding school and knowing the consequences, I still continued to do these things. Uh, and that was as a teenager, you know, before leaving school, during school holidays. I wasn't where I was meant to be. That that probably sums me up in a, in a, a lot of areas. <laughs>
2: okay. Well, listen, we might take a short break there
1: it's time
0: to speak up speak out and speak loud from an idea born on a park bench outside liberal party headquarters where hundreds of women told their stories of sexual violence introducing feminist fridays join our open speaking circle to tell your story any way you want a poem a speech or a dance you can even yell it out in the direction of parliament house because that's where we'll be on the steps Feminist Fridays, starting Friday the 30th of April at 12pm. Join us. It's time to unite, heal and take back our power. Feminist Fridays isn't just a protest. We are a non-hierarchical collective ready to destroy the patriarchy, starting with your voice. This event is taking place on Stolen Wurundjeri land and voices of First Nations people are prioritised. Hosted by Loud, Angry and Not Sorry, a 3CR supporter.
2: Accent to women. It seems so obvious to me that if you live in a in a completely violent um, cultural milieu, that it's going to translate into every aspect of women's lives. Accent to women.
0: What's a
1: border! They don't see it like a big wall right along the. How the can country? people live ordinary lives when they're living in such an extraordinary situation where there are two, where there are armies there and terrorists there, and such conflict every single day of their lives?
0: Accent to women a show by and about women from culturally and linguistically diverse backgrounds. Every Monday from 11am on Community Radio 3CR.
2: Uh, This is the Living Free Show on 3CR, 855 kHz on your AM dial and 3CR on digital radio. If you're interested in listening to one of our many podcasts, then either head to your preferred podcast platform, iTunes, Spotify, or just Google 3CR Living Free. On our show's webpage, you'll also find details about the Living Free Show and how to contact us. Today I'm talking with Hannah. Uh, We're talking about compulsive gambling and her recovery through Gamblers Anonymous. So Hannah, before the break, we are talking about, I think you said you went on a boat to Britain and that was your exposure to poker machines. So do you want to tell us a bit about What that was like for you, having, I think you said you used to play pinball machines. So what was it like to actually gamble for money?
1: The poker machines on the ship that I was on, there were, I think, three or four scattered near the the lift. And I would walk past there with some loose change and, and put the loose change in and stay there until it was all gone. It was my introduction to poker machines it wasn't my introduction to gambling because i would go to the 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 racetrack with on for big race days it's hard to say exactly when my gambling got out of control playing those pinball machines was a fun exercise and it also i I didn't need to communicate with people
2: that's an important aspect of gambling isn't it Mm. just being on your own
1: Yes, I know this is about my experience, but I'm going to jump, do a big jump, because in 1970, I came to Australia, and in 1970, my life in South Africa was spent a lot of time drinking. I, I never considered myself to be an alcoholic, but I certainly was a heavy drinker, and I had relationships which were dysfunctional. And then I came to Australia as a geographical away from my problems with drinking and dysfunctional relationships and I met the man that I ended up marrying and this was in Sydney. I got introduced to the r s l club which was somewhere we went regularly. I would go with the family and we would go out for dinner and then when we were eating, I couldn't wait to stop eating and go to the machines. And we would have a family way of playing where we'd, we'd all play around one machine. And I, that was so boring. I used to say, I'm going off to the bathroom and I'd disappear because I wanted to play by myself. I didn't want to share my... It wasn't sharing the winnings. It was sitting and waiting to pull that handle or, in those days, push buttons. And it kept growing. The machine side of things kept growing. I met the man that I married. I met him in Sydney. And then we got married in South Africa. In 1977, we came back to Australia. He'd been married previously and had three children. And he was working in a club. I was on my own a lot because he worked shifts. My children, when I first came with three and four, and they went into kindergarten. While they were at kindergarten or at school, I was in the TAB. I never went to the clubs. Um, My playing poker machines was done mainly with, with my husband as a family thing. I had a TAB account. I would stay at home and bet on the phone. I won and lost. But eventually, I sold the house in Sydney and moved to Adelaide. And I was in Adelaide when the casino opened there. And the amount of time I spent in venues or I spent gambling, my youngest son, who was at home with me, was born in 1981. He was born in Sydney. The other two were born in South Africa. He had a little Fisher-Price telephone and he picked that up and he never said hello. He quoted my TAB number. <laughs> he would say 13567. Anyone new that came into my house knew my TAB number because my son, that, that's how he answered the phone because that's what he, he heard me doing. And I have a friend today who lives in also lives in Melbourne, and we were talking about gambling and the losses I've incurred and where I am today and she was remembering I used to drive all the kids to school. I had a little mini moke and we'd pile all the kids in the back of the moke. That friend remembered that the kids had to wait for me at school because I would be in the TAB. And I was supposed to pick them up from school. And they'd be standing outside, not too long in those days for me to come and pick them up. But when I moved to Adelaide, I still used to take the kids. I enjoy the company of young children and dogs. But older, mature people, I think they expect me to be sensible and mature. And I'm a child. I like playing games. I don't like being told when to stop playing games. I don't like being told. And I sold the house in Sydney. I moved to Adelaide and bought another house. I had investments. I went to work for the South Australian Housing Trust. They restructured and I was offered a package. And I thought that was a good idea because I took a bank and I reckoned I could make more money money playing on the tables because at this stage I was, my preference was playing on tables and I played blackjack extensively, had a, a big turnover with my gambling. I never played the stock market because my mom was very frightened of that, but I learned about futures and options, which I suppose is a stock market, but I wasn't buying shares. At, at different times I've had, I've had a lot of money. My parents made a lot of money. They worked hard and I had a lot of guilt around losing the money that I did and losing the properties that I did.
2: So what was it like for your family when you lost?
1: They didn't know. Oh, okay. Nobody knew what I was doing. I divorced my husband because I didn't like the fact that I was having to spend the money I earned to support the family, he'd had an accident and got a payout from from whoever you get paid out when you have an accident at work, and he got a, a, a big payout.
2: Work cover, yeah.
1: Yeah, and he trusted me to look after his money, and I lost it. I gambled his money away. But when we got divorced, we still had a home, and we divided the home, so we split it. And he asked me to look after his money. He knew I gambled, but he didn't know what I lost. I had all these credit cards that I was juggling. I went to a financial advisor. And the financial advisor to me was, if your passport's in order, Hannah, get out. So I left the country. And I went back to South Africa. But... A lot of the fears I felt might have been ungrounded. But I believed that if I came back, I was going to be arrested. And I chose to come back with a South African passport and a visa, a visitor's visa back into Australia. Oh, I inherited a share in a diamond mine. And it was enough money to get me out of all the trouble I was in. Which I did, and I got somebody to invest money for me, and then I took a large sum of that money as my bank for for gambling, and within six months, I had lost that money, and I asked a friend who was going to AA because I'd seen notices in um, in the clubs and the pubs from. Gamblers Anonymous. So I knew that it existed. And I knew about a 12-step program. And I thought, well, maybe this is what I need. And I asked one of my alcoholic friends who was in rehab at the time, if he could find out about GA. As a result of me asking that, I ended up in a rehab myself. And in the rehab, that was when I was diagnosed with Uh, This beginning of pancreatitis, my blood pressure was through the roof. I was there for 28 days. And when I came out, I was in Cape Town. There was no GA meetings in Cape Town. And I was frightened. I was frightened of of where I was going to go and what I was going to do. One of the things I got as a result of of being a beneficiary of the diamond mines was a a diamond from De Beers and when I'd run out of money I sold that diamond so I could have more money to gamble. I was selling insurance policies that my dad had bought in his lifetime for, for my children and I realized that I was going to end up well it, it took me 20 years after I stopped gambling to go from having a decent portfolio a number of properties, to living in a relocatable unit. I'm now in an independent living unit in an aged care facility. The money that I have in my savings account equals what I have in my in my credit cards. But through that rehab, through all the mistakes, and I was listening to something today where they're talking about Curses and blessings. And the fact that I lost all that money and I found a 12-step program and I worked my program. In April this year, just before I moved into this village that I'm in, somebody told me about a lottery ticket that cost $10. And because I'm low on money, well, that would help. That that would really be useful. And it's only ten dollars, and I hadn't had a bet for twenty years, and I bought that ticket. And then a couple of weeks later, I decided oh, I'll, I'll check it because it wasn't, you know, in, in my gambling days, I was always in checking lottery tickets. I was always checking the form. I was, I was just obsessed with whatever gambling I was doing, and I also happened to today I. I'm definitely bipolar, so that's a mental health issue. I am also on the Parkinson's spectrum, which I think is why my brain sort of short circuits every now and then, and I don't really know what word I'm trying to find, so please be patient with me. When I, when I can't think what the right word is, it's because I'm very good at making excuses. I learned that as part of the addicted personality. I go back to South Africa, go back to the rehab, go back to coming out of the rehab and um, getting into AA, never, ever admitted to being an alcoholic. I went into AA on the third tradition, AA tradition. The only requirement for membership is a desire to stop drinking. I knew I was a compulsive gambler and I knew if I drank, I would gamble. Not only would I gamble, I would be back. I'm a stalker. I want relationships. And I find all the wrong people to have relationships with, especially the, the gambler, the drinker. And when I went to the first AA meeting, there were Al-Anon people with me. And I said, oh, no, I, I belong there. I'm the friend of the alcoholic. And they said to me, No. You don't. And I realized today after um, this is 20 years down the track that if I had gone to Al-Anon and not gone to AA, there was nothing to tell me not to drink. And I would have drunk. And I would have continued to gamble. I'm on a spiritual journey. I have a higher power that I I hand everything over to. Even this interview. i When I was asked if I wanted to do this interview, I'm nervous. But I know it's going to be okay. But it's what I need to do. And maybe somewhere in what I'm saying there's something that somebody needs to hear at the moment. And and COVID has been wonderful for me. Because in Gippsland, there are no GA meetings. I thought of starting one. And there hasn't been one since pre-COVID. There have been a couple of us that that tried to get one up and running and it hasn't worked. And I was at the Al-Anon meeting in Newburgh where I asked about renting one of the rooms there. And I can get a room on a Tuesday at lunchtime. So those other young mothers whose children are at school and they've got... Nothing else to do with their time except go and sit in a a venue and play machines or go down to the TAB and play the horses. Might have a meeting that they can come to. And initially, it was just about company. You know, it was that I, I wasn't alone. I was in a place and I wasn't losing any money. Eventually, I started, I was introduced to the 12 steps of AA, which is the, 12 steps of all anonymous programs, but it's the same same steps. And I had to start looking at my behavior. I had to start looking at how my behavior impacted on other people, whether it was gambling or just not being home for my kids. Two of my children are, are no longer alive. One committed suicide. Six months after I got into AA or six months after I got into rehab, and the other one two years later, and that was in 2001 I lost the first same 2003 I lost the second, and in 2002 the man who introduced me to the rehab and was the alcoholic, he died. And I used to feel that. I was responsible for these things happening, and I realized today that I'm not that powerful.
2: Yeah.
1: I don't, I don't have the strength to control anybody else's life, and sometimes it's really hard. Um, on that lottery ticket that I bought, I bought two $10 lottery tickets successfully in succession, and then I decided I was going to buy another $20 ticket. And I got in my car and I thought, this has got to stop because it was $10 and then it was $30. And I know that it can end up being $300,000, which I haven't got to lose. But it doesn't mean I wouldn't.
2: Mm. Awesome. We might take a quick break there.
0: Have you ever had a diagnosis of breast cancer or a gynecological cancer? Would you like to support other women as they go through their own cancer experience? Counterpart is a community-based service located in Melbourne. They support women right across Victoria who have been diagnosed with breast or a gynecological cancer. Counterpart peer support volunteers have all had their own cancer experience. They provide a listening ear and emotional and practical support to other women affected by cancer. As a peer support volunteer, you'll receive six weeks training one day a week. The 2021 Volunteer Intake will begin training in August. Applications close on June 7. To apply or find out more, visit counterpart.org.au forward slash volunteer or call our Resource Centre on 1300 781 500. Counterpart, women supporting women with cancer. A 3CR supporter.
1: Every corner of the land, womankind
0: arise! Women on the Line, a current affairs program devoted to women's voices, covering a diversity of women's interests and hearing women's perspectives on current affairs. Erosion of human rights leads directly and inevitably to erosion of human security.
1: We do not accept the denial of our rights because the right to have a
0: say over our country is our lover? Women on the line. Tune in on Mondays at 8:30 AM and Wednesdays at 6 AM on 3CR Community Radio 855 AM, oh, and streaming live at 3cr.org.au. Oh, living free.
1: Uh,
2: this is the Living Free Show on 3CR on digital radio and live streaming on 3cr.org.au forward slash streaming. Uh, today I'm talking with Hannah and we're talking about compulsive gambling and her recovery through Gamblers and So Hannah, before the break, you were talking about starting to buy lottery tickets and realising that that was a mistake. So I, I just want to take you back and talk about what it was like going to GA, your first GA meeting and whether you identified with the other people there. What what was it about the fellowship that attracted you to come back?
1: I mentioned that there were no GA meetings in Cape Town when I came out of rehab. But in, in the rehab, there were two compulsive gamblers, myself and another much younger gentleman. And there was a man in Cape Town who was a recovering Alcoholic, and he had 30 years. He'd been sober for 30 years, and he had found the poker machines and he started a GA meeting. And I think I owe that man my life because he knew the 12 step program backwards. Him and his wife adopted me, they got the meeting going, and I saw them. And and they've done the 12 steps. So I was at home right from the very, very beginning. I wasn't drinking. Why I wasn't drinking. Um, oh, the same as those lottery tickets I just mentioned, that was a wake-up call. I stopped smoking cigarettes in 1985. I went into rehab in 2000. Sitting in the rehab, there was a girl opposite me smoking a cigarette. And I asked for a puff. And every time we had tea, I'd have a couple of puffs and then I'd have a cigarette. And then I had to replace her box of cigarettes. And I realized that that wasn't gonna work because I'd keep smoking her cigarettes. But I needed that to happen to show me what happens when you have one cigarette, one drink, one bet you're stuffed. And although it took me 20 years To have that bet with a lottery ticket, which according to the GA guidelines, you don't gamble, you don't do anything for chance. And I've got the little book with me, but I can't remember the exact words, but you don't. You don't do anything where the outcome isn't. People say, well, it's only a lottery ticket or it's only a a bingo ticket or something like that. And it, it doesn't count, but it does because the, the not knowing when to stop, I've learned, is is very important to me. So what happened to me since COVID started, I was selected to as a startup to start a business. And I spent a lot of money on trying to get this business and to get a prototype made for the business. And I realized that there are two times I gamble. One is if I need money because i don't have it then i will think oh i'm looking for an easy soft way to get it and i will go and have a bet. or i've got a lot of money which is what happened when i got the inheritance and it doesn't matter if i lose 10 percent of what i've got whatever they may that may be but of course that doesn't work either and there's never enough so I'm probably one of the luckiest gamblers that I know because I found GA. I was ready for GA when I walked into it. I found AA, even though I didn't think I needed it. I realized that, you know, everything goes hand in hand. If I drink, I'll gamble. And I can't. I'm too old to go back and start over. I'm content with what I have. It's it's not much. I have a, a little car. I was, in fact, I was, I might, I think I might have sold my relocatable cabin. Because that, well, the, the phone message that came through, a lady has given me a deposit. But she hasn't seen the inside of the cabin because it still has a tenant in till this weekend. And I've got to be, I've got to be very careful because if I've sold that cabin and I've got some money, oh, I also don't trust people. I'm, what am I going to do with this money? I don't know. I can't afford to gamble it, and I can't afford to throw it away either because I can be very generous when, when I have money. Um, I like to help people. And I've been learning that giving people money doesn't help. No. Whether it's for gambling, whether it's for whatever it's for. Um, but I had 20 years of, of having money and being able to help people and suffering the consequences. Because this business I was going to start was not for me. It was for my son who'd got divorced and um, came out with not very much at all. And he'd been a stay-at-home dad. And, So today, life is good. I do my GA meetings. I'm doing Zoom meetings. I don't need to put petrol in the car. It doesn't matter if the car can't go too far. Uh, Eventually, when COVID is over, we will try and get a meeting up and running in Gippsland because we need them. I can't make anyone go to GA but I can help to make GA available.
2: Yeah, that's that's important part of being in a fellowship is ensuring that the meetings exist and yeah. you're there to help others. That's right.
1: So that's my addiction at the moment is helping others addicts and it's a good place to be.
2: Yeah, it's not a bad place to be. So you said you were helping your son. So have you got a good relationship with your son today?
1: Not the relationship I would like it to be, but I'm not easy. I am very self willed and I think I know how to run his life. His marriage broke down. He's got issues, but we, and I stay out of his hair. Yeah,
2: well, that's good. That's good, Alan.
1: <laughs> and he stays in Wangaratta. And I stay in Moi, So, um, and he's got a wonderful new lady in his life. She's the one who, in our phone, I can visualize her saying to him, answer the bloody phone, because he knows it's me on the phone. And he probably wonders, what am I? He's a very intelligent young man, but he has no self confidence. And I think he's frightened of me. I don't know what his his feelings are. I know he cares for me. Because I'm also a control freak. I don't I don't like to say that, but I certainly was trying to control him. He needs a 12-step program. He's he's got his own issues, he suffers with depression. I'm very grateful for the relationship that we do have, but I also know that if i i came back to australia because i had grandchildren and it was the biggest mistake i made because i i love my grandchildren and i have a relationship that any grandmother has with teenage children that she's she lives so many miles away from but when they were little we had a relationship and i came back And the relationship I had when I came back was with the fellowships, with both AA and GA, because my children didn't have time for me. I I was a convenience. I could walk the kids to school. And I'm very grateful that I got that opportunity. And I do know my grandchildren. I might not be their favorite grandmother, but the one's birthday is coming up next week. I'll be able to, to phone and say, hi, how are you? And they've never seen me drunk. <laughs> <laughs> and one of the reasons I have no money is that when before I came back here and I had a lot of money, I put money into their home, thinking I was helping them to pay off their home very quickly. However, I can't say that my daughter in law. Well, she told me that she spends money because when I wanted the money, I wanted some of the money so I could buy a house. She didn't have it. And we went through a lot of legal battles to, to try and sort those things out. So it's been an a strange thing. I have made I've made amends to her in as much as I've said to her, look, I'd... Can we put our differences behind us? I miss my grandchildren. I need my grandchildren. And she's cooperated. So her and I have a an okay relationship because she's, she's allowing the grandchildren to be part of my life. They don't see their father. And this is some of the things that I'm hoping that will be resolved and also realize I can't resolve those things
2: yeah it's difficult to watch people's relationships break down,
1: yeah when you know there is an answer yeah
2: <laughs> <laughs> it's just not you
1: <laughs> no, and I mean I keep doing repeating my old behaviors i um I wrote a car off, I bought another car temporarily and then found another car that was more suitable. So the temporary car I gave to my granddaughter for her 18th birthday. I'm glad I did it. She's a lovely girl and uh, she's got her problems. <laughs> but she also has the car that that grandmother bought her and put the first three months retro on it and paid the first year's insurance on it. And a little nag, what, what happens when the next of insurance comes up? And she's not working at the... Oh, she is working. She's working at Hungry Jack's, but, um, you know, she, she doesn't have much income. And can she afford to run a car? I don't know. And it's none of my business.
2: Someone else's problem. Yes. Yeah, you just got to let go. <laughs> <sighs> okay. Well, if anybody would like to find out more about Gamblers Anonymous, uh, you can phone them in Victoria on 03 96 96 6108 or go online at gaustralia.org.au for more information about meetings or phone contacts throughout Australia. That's about all we've got time for today. So I'd like to thank Hannah for sharing her gambling recovery story with us and talking about how being a member of Gamblers Anonymous has helped her. Thank you. Thank you. I hope you're bound to join us again next week and we'll feature recovery from compulsive drinking and we'll be joined by Lindy from Alcoholics Anonymous. Thanks for listening. Stay safe and stay tuned now for more radical radio on 3CR.
0: Kefirs are Palestinian scarves, and they're a symbol of support for justice for the Palestinian people. Buying one will support the last remaining factory in Hebron that makes kefirs, and all proceeds from the sales support projects in Palestine, especially Gaza, as well as local solidarity organizations. From the traditional black and white kufiya to an array of modern designs, all scarves are just thirty dollars each. Explore the range and order online, or drop by 3CR during business hours. Wear your support for the rights of Palestinians. Go to kufiyas.org.au. That's k-u-f-i-y-a-s.org.au. A 3CR supporter.